This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Chronic absenteeism has suddenly become recognized as a major educational problem. The new federal law, Every Student Succeeds Act of 2015, is asking states to come up with a measure of school performance that will supplement the test score results schools have generally relied upon in their accountability systems. And measures of chronic absenteeism are becoming one of the most popular options states are considering. In a recent paper, Peter Bergman and Magdalena Bennett have shown that a significant proportion of absenteeism appears to be planned jointly by students deciding to become, let's say, truants at the same time. That's the word that they use in their paper, so I can use it here. Uh, and Peter has agreed to join me on the Education Exchange today. Peter, welcome to the Education Exchange. Thanks for having me. Peter, what is the definition of chronic absenteeism? I know you really are focusing in the first instance on absenteeism, but I know your findings have implications for this larger social problem, chronic absenteeism. How would you define that? Typically, chronic absenteeism is missing 10% of school days a year. So you assume 180 days in the school year for uh, most districts, then that's going to be 18 days of school. So, and can you find, identify this early on in the year, or do you have to wait till the end of the year in order to decide whether somebody's chronically absent? You can sometimes, if you're tracking students by day, you can see this show up pretty quickly. Uh, and one thing that we note in our paper is that school districts typically are looking at full day absences or half day absences, but there's also another component to chronic absenteeism which could be at the class level as well. So what is the rate of absenteeism? Let's start, start with the sure. nationwide, what's the, what's, what do we know about oh, absenteeism? That, yeah, that's an excellent question. So there is data from the uh, Civil Rights Data Collection which tracks um, chronic absenteeism across public schools. Off the top of my head, unfortunately, I don't think I could tell you. I could say in, in our data, absences were 6% um, of school days were, were missed in the county. And then um, about 14% of classes were missed. So while that 14% is interesting, I think the 6% comes close to what I've heard mm -hmm. as uh, the, the, the percent nationally. Uh, what is the, uh, so how much of that absenteeism do you think is, would fall into this chronic absenteeism? I think it varies a lot from district to district, actually. So there, there might be an average rate, which I wouldn't know off the top of my head, but it, my sense is in some of the districts I've worked in, particularly in lower income urban settings, I've seen extraordinarily high rates of chronic absenteeism. You, you can see above 20%. And in other districts, might be higher income, I, I think it's, it's significantly lower. Yeah, well, I know a little bit about New York City, and I think that 20% figure is, is probably yeah. in the range of where they're uh, experiencing it, and sometimes it can go mm -hmm. even above that. So where did you do your particular study? We did our research in Kanawha County Schools in West Virginia, so that's the largest county in, in West Virginia. It also has the, the city of Charleston within it. So the city of Charleston and the surrounding area uh, in, in West Virginia. Well, West Virginia is a lot in the news these days. So is there a lot of uh, absenteeism of, of one sort or another? Is this, I mean, we, we uh, are told the mines are closing down and tragedies yeah. are occurring in, in, in families and communities. So what's your 
Yeah, what, assessment West, West Virginia and the Charleston area in general has had um, some difficult times in the in the past year. So, you know, as I said, in the year of our study, there was the six percent absence rate, but higher rates of class absenteeism. But that also varies within schools. So in certain schools, you might find absenteeism rates that are, are going to be much higher than that. West Virginia also had some extreme weather in the, the past year, and they had, FEMA had to come in and actually shut down schools. Kids had to transfer across schools, and some schools actually operated, if I'm not mistaken, on four-day school weeks and half days. And so there's a lot of disruption, which I think uh, in the subsequent year after our study uh, exacerbated attendance problems further just because of those contextual And isn't factors. there been a teacher strike there as well? And even more recently, yes. <laughs> even, yeah, that's, that's correct. Exactly, exactly. Well, I guess that we can't uh, call that chronic absenteeism <laughs> on the part of the students. Well, we won't even get into also <laughs> teacher absenteeism, which is a whole other issue. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> a, a related phenomenon that's uh, worthy of study. Uh, so... You're looking specifically at planned truancies if, to the extent that you can really identify it. Um, so that's a really innovative idea. I don't, has anybody ever tried to do this before? Not to my knowledge. Uh, to our knowledge, Magdalene and I, we haven't seen any other research on this. I think there's probably some qualitative studies. This research certainly comes out of my own experience missing a whole lot of class in high school. Uh, with my friends, but no, I haven't seen any other research specifically on this. All right, I won't ask you what, what you were doing when you <laughs> did these uh, planned truancies, but um, how, do you, how do you measure whether or not an absenteeism is coordinated with somebody else or not? That's a, that's a great question, and, and it's a, actually kind of a tricky one to pin down. So first what we do is we're going to set up the data in a way where we can identify how many times one student has skipped class with every other student in their school. So we can create this data set where we know um, student A has skipped class with student B 10 times. And then we can do that for every other student. But then the question is, well, a lot of those absences, we might not be systematically coordinating our absences. Maybe we just miss the same class on the same day just because we like to skip class, even though we don't know each other. So what we're gonna do is something uh, where we actually simulate absences. So take, say I miss 10% of my classes and you miss 5% of your classes. I can simulate data that's going to match those rates. I see. What's the chance that we would be absent on the same day strictly by accident? Exactly. And then we're going to compare what we observe to what we see there under the simulations where students would just be missing class by accident. Because again, maybe we just share the same schedules and so there's just... Well, maybe, uh, we, maybe we both love to skip classes on Monday. Absolutely, exactly. So how do you adjust for that? That's right. So we have a, an absence rate for every class. So maybe I just don't like biology in the morning. So we're going to have an uh, absence rate for each specific class and, and time. We're going to have an absence rate for every day of the week. Maybe I don't show up on Mondays because I hate Mondays. And then we're going to have an absence rate that's just particular to a, a given student. And we'll match all of that to what we see in the data. And then that will allow us to simulate the, the, these networks that we create uh, under the assumption that we uh, uh, skip class totally independent of each other. So you're looking at coordination or, or joint absences that are over and above what could have happened randomly once you know all these specific things about when the absences take place. That's exactly right. Exactly. So that's a very clever idea. And uh, 
Do you, how many of all absences turn out to be these coordinated absences? That's a great question. So what, one way we answer this is how many students have a peer that they seem to be skipping class with systematically, that it seems to be much higher than the rate we would observe if they were just doing it totally independent of each other. And we see about 38, 39% of students appear to be skipping class with, at a rate with a peer that is far above what we observe in the, in the simulated data. Meaning like if you looked at our simulations, their observed absences would be in the 90th percentile of what we'd expect relative to so skipping access. So if I get this right, then 40% of the students, if they are absent, they are absent with somebody else. They have somebody with whom they skip um, together systematically. Now it's hard to say necessarily what share of those absences because maybe there is also some independence to it but we can say you seem to have a peer that it is not coincidence that you are skip missing a lot of class together so I there's a the lot of people it. like you and your friend <laughs> that's, that's right they're, they're, that's they're right. not just the oddballs out there there's, there's yeah. a lot of this going on you know i did it once myself when we group of us all fled to go to a a, a play in a neighboring town and uh yeah. Wow. What a, nearly risky, got what a caught, risky behavior. Nearly got thrown out of high school. And it nearly destroyed my life. I'm curious so. to hear more about this play. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, I can understand why this could easily be the case. Uh, but now if it only happens once in a while, it only happened once in my case, I want you to know. So if it only happens once in a while, why would we even care about this? That's a great question. So there do, do seem to be a high share of students who, who coordinate their absences. And then I think the policy implications are if we have a program that aims to address truancy, one, there could be an effect of that program not only on the person who receives it, but on the person that they were skipping class with, even if that other person wasn't part of the program. So say you and I skip a lot of class together, we, we really enjoy the theater, and I receive uh, some sort of truancy intervention, like a case management program. Well, that might not only have an effect on me, but since you and I skip a lot of class together, maybe now you're more likely to I'm not going to do this time. without something to do. Right? <laughs> so this sounds, this sounds like a, a, a reasonable thing, and I know you've done an intervention, so tell me how you tried to reduce absenteeism. Great question. Was this in West Virginia or? Yeah. The same setting. So the same, same setting, setting in, yeah. in West Virginia. Yeah. We had, there's 22 middle and high schools there. And we had an intervention, uh, this is with, uh, with Eric Chan, uh, another graduate student at Teachers College. We sent out automated text alerts every week to parents about every class their child had missed. And that's unusual because most districts in their data are focusing on full day and half day absences. But we were sending high frequency alerts about every class absence. So we would say, your child this past week missed Spanish class and math class. We also had, as part of this alert system, we'd also send out information about every, uh, the number of missed assignments in each class, and we'd also send out low grade alerts of your child's grades. I get really annoyed. Do people get annoyed with all this? You know, I think it depends on one, how well your child might be doing, and two, what your existing access to that information is. So when we surveyed families about how often do you hear from your child's school about their academic progress, half the family said, I hear less than once every three months. So report cards come out every six to eight weeks, and if your child is not doing well, if they're missing a lot of class, they actually 
accumulate absences pretty quickly. And by the time six to eight weeks rolls around, a lot could have happened that maybe if you'd intervened sooner, you could have made a difference. Well, so uh, now, but you do get parental consent before you set up this program, right? Correct. So how do you avoid uh, having a biased estimate because you know, some people consent and other people don't consent. What's your way around yeah, that? Yeah, so, so to actually run the intervention, we needed consent. But we could observe data on everybody in the schools. Like as many researchers, we get de-identified data on all uh, students in these classrooms. So what we could say is that, uh, let's say you agreed to consent to the study and um, you and I are close friends. And then there's somebody else who also agreed to consent to the study and had a close friend. You were treated, but I was not treated because I didn't even consent. And so then there's going to be, there might be the potential for a spillover effect. And the person in, who also had another peer, they randomly, uh, just by the randomization, their uh, friend was not treated. And so we can compare these two peers together. And I think the key aspect is that we can observe data on all students in the classroom, not just those who consented. And, and, you, and you split the sample be, of those who consent between those who actually get the intervention and those who do not. Correct. So you can compare those two, and then you can compare them to the non-consenting group. So what percent do consent? How many people are willing we had, to participate? Yeah, we had 10% consent rate, and well, actually, I, let me let me take take that back a bit. So we had to do a telephone consent according to the county because they wanted us to make sure we had the right contact information and that we had an active verbal consent from the families. Now, what, if we reached a family, consent rates were actually extremely high. But it's, families rarely pick up the phone from telephone numbers they don't recognize. And so while more than 80%, if we reach them, would consent, we overwhelmingly never even got in touch with most of the families in the district by telephone. So that's what drove down our consent rates to be so low. So how effective was this uh, reminder or information treatment at reducing absenteeism? It's a great question. So we saw a 17% increase in classes attended. So students were attending 17% more class as a result of the This is a pretty good uh, hit rate, so to speak, uh, for uh, a, a low-cost intervention, because this is not too hard to do, right? You're not typing up individual letters to everybody, right? You're just hitting a button on a machine and it's automatically going out there. So this is fairly inexpensive and you're able to get a 17% increase in Correct. So I think the, the main aspect, the marginal cost of a text message is quite cheap. So that's going to be less than a cent. But you do need the data systems in place. And you need to be able to gather that data and use it to pre-populate text messages that go out. So some people think, you know, we sent 32,000 text messages to about 600 families over the course of the school year. That's a lot. That costs $64. But to have the data systems in place and monitor those, all told, it's going to be about $7 per student over the, the school year. In fact, that is what the cost is. Uh, but now this latest study that you've done suggests that you're going to benefit not only those people that you actually reached and reminded and so forth, but you're also going to benefit their friends. Correct. So we saw that if we didn't take into account the fact that the intervention also benefits their friends, we'd be understating the cost effectiveness of that intervention by 19%. And our intervention is cheap, but there might be more effective interventions that cost more money, such as these K-12 
case management interventions might generate larger treatment effects. And so the ability to use that network information and understand, well, is the cost effectiveness, maybe it's a little bit lower than what we thought if we incorporate this network aspect. Well, Peter, uh, this is a fascinating set of studies that you've done. It's good to know that people are beginning to really work on a really major problem in American education, the frequency with which some students uh, do not attend school. You can't learn anything at school if you're not there in the classroom. So uh, uh, thank you very much for uh, joining me on the Education Exchange. Thanks so much for your time and your questions. Really appreciate it. I've been speaking with Peter Bergman, and uh, he and uh, Magdalena Bennett have uh, written a paper, Better Together, which is uh, to appear shortly, I'm sure, in a major journal. Uh, but we get a little advanced peek at it. And uh, thank, thank you all for joining me today on the Education Exchange. The Education Exchange is released every Monday at noon, and so please uh, be on the lookout for the weekly Education Exchange podcast. Thank you very much.